Hello and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. I'm Zoe Cunningham. On the Digital Lighthouse, we get inspiration from tech leaders to help us to shine a light through turbulent times. We believe that if you have a lighthouse, you can harness the power of the storm. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Anne Curry, who is, I would say, an ambassador for green tech. Can I call you that, Anne? That's a very nice thing to say, and I think that's probably accurate. (laughs) Hopefully, anyway. (laughs) Well, welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. So can you tell me a bit about what you do now and how your career developed, I guess, to bring you to where you are? Well, so at the moment, I am on the leadership team. I'm the community co-chair of the Green Software Foundation, which is a new Linux foundation there to kind of educate and support companies in moving over towards sustainable design, sustainable architecture and sustainable hosting for their tech products. I'm also part of a startup, even though I swore I would never, ever, ever join a startup again. I'm part of a startup around greening grid. So providing data to devices so that they can actually make better, smarter, more green choices. But uh, my path to getting to this point was I was a a very hardcore software engineer in the 90s when everything had to be incredibly efficient and low electricity, low carbon usage because computers were really terrible. (laughs) So I started there and all C servers, so all very efficient stuff and kept doing that for quite a few years, then ended up in doing various startups. And then 10 years ago, moved into how hosting can be more efficient. And I realized that really, we had to make it more efficient for it to be greener. And that is how I got to where I am today. C got me to where I am today. But what got you here won't get you there. C is not really the scalable answer to how we get to the next stage. That's really interesting because it slightly preempts my next question that I think we're in an industry that is highly dominated, I would say, by young people and very open to the ideas of young people and very welcoming. However, sometimes that can mean that we lose the lessons of the past. And I think this reference back to how in the olden days, we had to be super efficient with our coding because the capacity was just not there in the hardware. And it's almost as if as resources have expanded, we can almost get a bit lazy in terms of how we think about using them. Is that fair? Oh, that's more than fair. That's entirely true. In fact, it's certainly been the case that over the past 30 years that I've been in technology, we have consistently prioritised developer productivity over machine productivity. And hardware engineers have done an amazingly good job. Physicists have done an amazingly good job at upgrading the hardware that we're running on from servers to laptops and to phones. We've got kind of at least, in most most aspects, we've got at least a thousand times better resources now than we did the equivalent of 25 years ago, say. But we don't We don't use it to be a thousand times more efficient. We use all of those resources to make developers develop faster. As I said, I mentioned C. C was was very efficient language, but it's very slow to develop in. And we didn't really want slow progress. We wanted faster progress. So we moved to languages that were much more abstract, much less efficient as a result. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we should go back to C. I don't think we should. But there are lessons that we can learn from them that are not always 
all about developer productivity, but sometimes they are. Sometimes you can align developer productivity and greenness. If we can manage that, then we really have hit the jackpot. That's exactly what we want to achieve. I think it's something that comes up a lot in programming that you have to choose what you're going to be efficient in. And actually being efficient in one thing is not helping you be efficient in terms of something else. What you need to prioritise depends on what your scarce resources are. So obviously, we do still have this scarcity of software developers. And if we had loads of software developers, we could throw at problems. Maybe we wouldn't need to worry so much about making them productive. We need to worry about whatever we were relatively scarce in. But obviously, in the case of machine efficiency in particular, or energy efficiency, we're now starting to find that the market isn't telling us what to do. We want to be more efficient than we would strictly need to be for cost reasons. Yeah, I think that's true. We've moved away from hardware efficiency being useful to our bottom line, really, because the big cost is always your headcount. It's always your engineers, if you can even get your hands on them. And I was thinking the other day, oh, is, you know, Elon making all these Twitter folk redundant and all the other people making their folk redundant, you know, resulting more engineers to actually produce more efficient code. But I suspect it won't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perhaps got a bit less efficient in how we code and I suppose how our programming languages are using resources as well. It's not just about what the engineers are choosing to do. However, I think that the drive to do something about it and to care about our impact on the environment has also changed since the 90s. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. And that's something that's happened very suddenly and very recently. So in 2020, AWS came out and said that they were going to be carbon zero by 2030, joining Google and Azure, who'd already made this statement, but in the cloud market, they're not necessarily such movers and shakers. But Amazon came out with that. And then a year later, they moved ahead of Google and Azure, at least in their communications, by saying that they were adding sustainability to their well-architected pillars for AWS. And that really did start saying to people, this is not negotiable. You actually need to start designing and architecting for sustainability. Because if you don't, your hosting is going to become unbelievably expensive. That was quite a shock statement. And I was very pleased to see it. Mm. Well, we've had that come up on other podcasts, actually, that's talking about essentially organisations with a very large tech system at the heart of what they're doing. You can start off by thinking, oh, we've got loads of space in the cloud, we can do whatever we want. But it can add up and you can suddenly find yourself faced with this awful choice of a large bill to re-architect or a large bill to keep it running as it is. So is this the most pressing climate issue for the tech industry right now? What are the most pressing issues? So there was a report done by the EU Commission, who were actually quite good on this stuff a couple of years back. And they said that the tech industry faced two challenges that are about equal in size. So tech industry as a whole, 
There are two ways that we put all of the carbon into the atmosphere. One is data center operations. So the electricity that you know, powers the machines and runs the air conditioning systems or cooling or whatever. So that is something that really needs to be reduced. But also the other way that we produce a, push a lot of carbon into the atmosphere is embedded carbon. The carbon that is produced as a byproduct of creating consumer tech like phones and laptops and Fitbits and all the kind of things. In fact, that's arguably even higher than the energy use in data centers. So I talk about data centers because that's who I'm talking to, people who can affect that. But there's actually a bigger problem, which is e-waste. Because if you throw away a working phone or even a non-working phone, there's a lot of carbon went into the production of that phone. So we really, really need those consumer devices to be lasting a lot longer than they currently do. So in fact, what we're talking about is specific instance of the more general problem of this throwaway society that we now live in. Because we're now in this amazing luxury position, you know, if you go back just a couple of generations, everyone held on to everything they had because you never knew when you were going to get another one. You didn't know when you'd get another jumper or whatever it was. Whereas nowadays, we're in this immensely fortunate position of having so much that we've almost stopped valuing it. And I'm guessing when we're talking about disposable technology, it's just that producing each of those things is just generating much more carbon than the other things that we throw away. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's bad enough when you throw away a jumper, but a jumper is absolutely nothing compared to a mobile phone. (laughs) It's a discussion I constantly have. What is the greatest gram by gram density of embedded or embodied carbon? And it must be mobile phones. Mm. They are probably the most sophisticated thing. There are probably things that are worse than that that are not necessarily mass market consumer products. But in terms of mass market consumer products, I would bet it's probably mobile phones. But I'm happy to be corrected on that. Someone can come back with a worse example. (laughs) (laughs) But also something doesn't have to be the worst for it to be a bad thing (laughs) that we don't want to do. So... Do you find that the tech industry is quite a well-informed and active community in this area? Or do you find the opposite? I would say that it's vastly better informed than it was. Less well-informed than it was in the 90s, just because we didn't care about greenness in the 90s. We were just very informed about writing efficient software. But now we are starting to become more aware of that again. We are starting to think about it. And where people like... Amazon and AWS start to say, look, you've got to do it or else, then we do listen. And I guess it generates debate, doesn't it? So obviously, Amazon literally controls a lot of the servers, so they can do something about that. They can also affect the terms that they will agree to with people signing up to use their servers. And finally, in a kind of softer way, when they talk, people listen they have a very wide reach in terms of affecting how other people in the industry feel about things and how important I guess an individual technologist will consider energy use yeah they do there's a great deal in it for them we were talking about how nobody's going to rewrite their applications in C like we did in the 90s to be much more efficient because who has the time for that it's crazily slow the right 
concept to think about here is carbon efficiency. So sometimes that's the same as energy efficiency. And sometimes it's about time shifting. So moving a workload to when there's more green energy available. So don't run it overnight, run it at lunchtime or whatever. So the cloud providers like AWS and Azure and Google do have a USP on this. It is to their advantage to press being green. And it comes back to what I was talking about earlier. There are two ways that you can make your software greener. You can make it more efficient or you can time shift when the work is done. But that means that workloads have to be time shiftable and you have to be able to time shift them. Now, it happens that when it comes to efficiency, you could rewrite your applications in C or Rust or whatever, but well, that's quite a lengthy thing to do. There aren't that many engineers who know how to do that, and it takes a lot longer than writing more modern lightweight frameworks and languages. So there isn't a strong desire to go down that route because it's prioritizing machine productivity over developer productivity, which, as we've discussed, companies don't like doing. But there is an overlap between machine productivity and developer productivity, which is to use cloud services which have optimized already. Things like Lambda or pretty much any of the Azure services or the Google services, they're written to be highly efficient. So you kind of get efficiency without people having to rewrite their stuff in C. So it's to the advantage of AWS or Google or Azure to be telling people to be efficient because they can do it for them much more simply than they can do it themselves. And the other thing that cloud providers can do is they can offer services that make it easier for your applications to time shift their workloads. The classic for that is spot instances. So spots on Azure, spots on AWS, and they're called preemptible instances on GCP. So things like that, which clouds provide, but are hard for you to implement yourself as an enterprise, they shift people towards the cloud. So it's in Amazon and Google and Microsoft's best interests to push sustainability because they can achieve it much more easily than you can by yourself. So for anyone who's listening, who's maybe running a tech business, what's the best thing to do if you're a kind of individual tech business in this great big industry that we're all in what are the best things that you can do to reduce your impact on the planet that's an excellent question the best place to start is probably with your hosting so if you look at your own data centers or you look at the data centers of whoever's providing your server capacity for you do they have good green commitments do they have a good milestone for when there will be carbon zero. If they don't, you need to insist that they do, because actually it's a business risk for you if they don't have a good story here, because eventually carbon taxes and carbon pricing will come in and you'll be hit by it if you have systems that just blow up at that point. So you need to make sure that your host is planning for that kind of thing. The other thing you need to be thinking about is where do you host, what regions, because all regions are not equal on this. There are some places where there's loads and loads of green energy and it'll be much simpler for you and much cheaper for you to build sustainable systems. So places like Canada, where there's loads of hydro, uh, places like Scandinavia, where there's a lot of solar and wind. There are places that are terrible as well. So historically, Virginia, unfortunately, home of EC1, has always been a very dirty grid. You know, it's a very coal-fired grid. So you want to have a look at your host 
and your regions. Then after that, you want to have a look at your operational practices. So are you using things which minimize unnecessary machines? So have you got auto scaling in place? Do you have a lot of zombie services, things that are not doing anything, but are still lying around that you should just be turning off? So have a look at the operation side of things. You then want to have a look at your architecture because some architectures are more greenable than others. As I said before, using spot instances is very green because you can delay jobs until there's green power available. That's excellent. Serverless architectures are very efficient. They are the modern equivalent effectively of writing your applications in C. And then if you have an app, if you have something that is tied into an end user device like a phone, try to make sure that you don't effectively kill off a perfectly reasonable device and a working device by stopping doing security patches, for example. So you need to be thinking about how do you make those consumer devices last as long as possible? Do not be the final nail in the coffin of a perfectly working device. And then finally, you can look at making your own code efficient. So you only really have to do this for code that's running on demand. So it might be running at a time when there's very dirty power available on the grid, but you can't defer it. You have to run immediately at that point. Try and make that code as efficient as possible. So in the end, that might mean that you end up having to have a look at more modern but highly efficient languages like Rust. And I suppose the other thing that I'm always really excited to ask is what are the companies either in tech or more broadly, that are starting up right now to help the general public reduce their impact? Gosh, now that is an interesting one because I can't immediately think. Most of my focus is on new services that are coming out from from the clouds where they are putting in a lot of new services there. And actually, ironically, they are doing the best work on this. I, I did come across a startup the other day. I really like the idea. I'm not entirely sure how it's going to work out in the long run, but the idea is to, in the same way that SETI uses machines that are just sitting around not doing anything in your own home that you've already paid for and have a lot of embodied carbon in them to obviously crunch data for the search for extraterrestrial life, that there are startups that are looking at kind of building a cloud in a SETI-like way, using all those devices that are all over the place and have a lot of embodied carbon in them. Now, I think that's actually going to be quite difficult to do. (laughs) And it kind of doesn't always deliver the value of the cloud. But it's an interesting idea. And I hopefully we'll see a lot more along these lines of how do you get more out of devices that are already sitting around out there that are embodied carbon, loads of work and carbon is released into the atmosphere as a result of producing those devices. How do we make sure that we get maximum utility out of them? That's something that is very interesting. I'll be fascinated to see how that progresses. And just finally, I really want to ask, because you're also, as well as a long-term tech professional, you're also an artist and an author. How does that fit in with your tech career? Oh, very badly. I do tend to find that I'm not very good at multitasking. So if I'm painting don't do anything else. If I'm writing, I don't do anything else. So I haven't really painted in years while I've been getting the first seven novels of my 10 book science fiction series, the Panopticon series out. Now that I'm working on a new startup, my progress in my novel writing has really gone down the toilet. I time switch between them (laughs) on quite a large time frame. I'm stuck halfway through book eight 
as I try to balance a startup and a writing at the same time. But I do really, I get an awful lot out of the writing. It's very close to the kind of stuff that I'm doing on the green side and the new technology side as well. It's nice to do a range of things. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming onto the Digital Lighthouse and helping us to shine a light for others. Thank you for having me. Thank you.